Would you? Think about what you're saying. If you say yes, you're saying you'd rather have Jesus than anything this world offers you. Then that means you're not stepping away from Jesus to grasp anything in this world. We continue our series, Putting Faith into Practice. The ladies were gone last, last week. They were at a retreat in the mountains of North Carolina, and a lot of men can't make it here with children. <laughs> They're a whole lot less able-bodied than you even think they are, ladies. But, but uh, So I'm going to rewind a little bit of the introductory material because of that. In this series, we're going to survey the entire book of James. We're learning lessons. We're going to learn how to live out lessons from the book of James. I urge you, read that book. Spend the next months. We'll be here for a couple of months. And let me urge you to to, um, increase your frequency when you're here in services. Read the book. Study. Ask God to apply it to your lives that we could know this truth. It's... It's, um, it's a practical manual for Christian living. Um, it was written by Jesus' brother, who bore that name, James, about 15 years after Jesus' ascension. It's probably about A.D. 44 to 49. Now realize, dates from that era are always estimates, and people disagree about precisely what the date was. But most agree that James was probably the first book written that's included in the New Testament. It was likely written in Jerusalem because James became the leader of the church located there until he was martyred for his faith in A.D. 62. Now, one lady, Jane Fry, asked, well, why wasn't James a disciple of Jesus? Good question. James and his three brothers, there were some sisters as well, half-brothers of Jesus, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah early on. John 7, verses 2 through 5. They apparently changed after Jesus appeared to James following his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And by the time Pentecost occurred, all of James' brothers were in attendance and were followers and believers in the identity of Jesus, Acts 1.14. So James wrote his primary audience, his initial audience, which every book in the Bible has an initial audience, and then since it's guided by the Spirit, we're an audience as well. But his initial audience was to Jews who were believing Jews, who lived outside of Palestine. And he was writing to deal with problems they were having in their personal lives and also in their churches. Last week I said, well, and you may wonder, well, how did they all get scattered? Well, some were scattered by being deported by the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, and then the Romans who were there at Jesus' time. Some just fled under persecution, either before or after Jesus' life. 
But these were people who were believers in Jesus Christ and his identity who lived outside of Palestine. Last week, we focused on difficult troubles and trials that tested their faith. Today, we focus on temptation to sin. The focus of this message is for each of us individually. You know, as I preach, if we look over at someone else or in our mind, we think, oh, this is about him, this is about her, we will miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. So this message is about you, not him, not her. All of us are susceptible to sin. Not all of us are susceptible to all sins. Sometimes we sort of glory in the fact or gloat in the fact that we're not susceptible to certain sins that others we know are. But all of us are susceptible to something sinful. And those precise sins appeal to particular wounds and weaknesses and lies we believe about life, about ourselves, about God. So right now, you ask the Spirit of God, what am I tempted by? Ask him to show you. Some of them say, oh, I got it all under control. No, 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 you are a long way from there. What am I susceptible to? And then we're going to learn how to resist temptation. Several steps just in this passage found in James chapter 1. You can turn there. First, we resist temptation by refusing to blame God. Verse 13. And remember when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. So I'm going to break this verse up. The first part. Remember when you're being tempted, not if you're being tempted. All of us experience temptation. Now, the word that's translated tempted, and remember, I don't, I don't care that you memorize Greek words. The reason I'm pointing out some Greek words is when they have specific meanings. And sometimes, because sometimes English words, the same English word might be used to translate different Greek words. Because no, no two languages are the same word for word. No such thing. And that's why the people that are interpreting me right now have a real time finding Spanish words sometimes for what I say. Particularly when I'm in my deep southern accent. But the word that's translated tempted is piasmos. Piasmos. And it's the same word that is translated trouble last week in verse 2. But also, it's the same word in verse 12 that was translated testing and temptation. But there was only one Greek word. The reason there are two words is because it was trying to show you different shades of meaning out of the same Greek word. Now, the same word that has the basic meaning of trying 
testing or proving the genuineness or strength of something. In this case, our faith. And this word can have either a negative or a positive connotation, depending on the context. Because the same word, you see, is used for both temptation and testing. The primary difference is not the situation that presents itself itself. The pirasmos. No, the primary thing that determines the difference is the person's response to the situation. If a believer, now when I say believer, I'm talking about someone born again by the Spirit of God. Unfortunately, in the South, not many people dispute the facts of Jesus' life. But agreeing with the facts, acknowledging the facts, doesn't less necessarily make you a born-again believer. That's something the Spirit of God does in you and to you. You're regenerated. So when I say believer, I'm not saying you're not arguing with the facts. I'm saying you've been born again by the Spirit. You got that, right? Okay. So if a believer, that is what a Christian is, responds to a situation in faithful obedience to God's Word, it's a trial that he or she has endured. If that same person yields to that situation, it's a temptation. Depends on your response. The Greek word's inclusive of both. A right response yields to greater spiritual endurance. Verses 3 and 12. A wrong response leads to sin and greater weakness and an increasing susceptibility to sin. Have you noticed that? The first time you're presented something, you're pretty strong in it. But if you give in to the temptation, it gets easier and easier and easier. And you no longer at some one point even feel guilt. Here in verses 13 and 14, the idea is clearly temptation, which is enticement to evil. When we sin, we often look for someone or something to blame. Is that true? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, who did Eve blame? Who? Not Adam. That may be happening now in your house, but no. Who did Eve blame? Serpent. Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed who? Now, Adam blamed his wife, but also God. Also God. Genesis 3, 12 and 13. So when we disobey God, we may blame someone. We may blame the mistreatment that we've suffered from other people. We may blame emotional pain or difficult life circumstances. Some of us even blame Satan. And those things might be true. But our response to that temptation 
is always and only about whom? It's about us. Did y'all hear that? My response to a situation, trial or temptation, testing, is always and only about point. Me. You'll go a long way if you get that. And it remains my responsibility. I didn't say some of these things weren't true, okay? But your response is about you. Often, we blame God for our sin, which James strongly, strongly rejects. 13b. Do not say God is tempting me. Some people blame God for directly causing them to sin. That's not what I hear much. But I do hear often people blaming God indirectly by saying that he didn't change or remove the situation that tempted them to sin. I often hear that. And it's, it's quite often in the context of an immoral relationship. And they say, God brought this person into my life and he didn't remove my feelings even when I asked him. Verse 13c. God is never tempted to do wrong. This is a, a unique Greek word. Apirastos. You don't, again, you don't need to know the Greek word. But, but this is a unique Greek word. And it's the only place it appears in the entire Greek New Testament. Nowhere else does this word appear. Because it means untemptable. And it relates only to God. None of us occupy that status of being untemptable. Temptable. God has no capacity or vulnerability to temptation. God has no interest in sin. He knows its true nature. Temptation offers no attraction and no appeal to him because he is whole, complete, mature, perfectly righteous, totally pure, holy. Now, holy doesn't only mean righteous. Holy actually means other, different. He's set apart from us. He's other than us. But it includes his unique righteousness. But the point here is that God doesn't need anything outside of himself to feel better about himself, to feel better about his existence. He defines contentment. Verse D, I mean 13D, and God never tempts anyone. God doesn't use evil relating to us. It's detestable to him. 
And he knows it's destructive of people he loves and cares for. It, it would be like you putting cancer cells in food you were serving your child. The idea is horrifying. Now, God does allow trials. But remember, they turn into temptations because of our responses. And the trials are given not to solicit Christians, followers to sin, but to move them to greater endurance and resistance to sin. That's what I dealt with last week. Okay, so when you sin, you already had identified your susceptibility, right? Everybody knows it. Doesn't have to be some drugs, alcohol, doesn't even have to. It can be anger, it can be depression, it can be virtually any approach to try to make up for, for something that you do feel that's negative. When you sin, whom do you blame? Whom do you blame? Do you ever blame God? We also resist temptation by recognizing the process. Verses 14 and 15. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Sin is not an isolated act. It's not even a series of isolated acts. It's rather the result of a specific process that includes a sequence of steps. The first step is desire. 14a. Temptation comes from our own desires. Again, desire, the same word, is is morally and spiritually neutral. Its rightness and wrongness is determined partly by the object desired and partly how and for what purpose it's desired. We have God-given desires. We have a a hunger for food and and for um, shelter, for sleep, for love, for sex. There's nothing wrong with those God-given desires, but they are meant to be fulfilled In God-appointed ways. In biblically appropriate ways. Eating is normal. Gluttony is sin. Sleep is normal. Laziness is sin. Sex is normal in God-ordained marriage between a man and woman. Promiscuity outside of God-ordained marriage... Is sin. Now I'm going to make a comment here. Just because our culture is in such a shambles. Increasingly so. The Supreme Court. Can determine what is legal. The Supreme Court. Cannot decide what is moral. Now I don't, well, I don't, I don't want y'all to applaud. Here's the thing. I don't want you to applaud. I want you to apply. When we start, and then we do nothing, we say nothing. Don't accept 
that you're being hostile toward people that are struggling with some addictive behavior. You hear me? There's nothing Christian about that. So you don't turn into some angry person. You show love, kindness, but you help lead people toward God and out of sin that captures them. Trouble occurs, C.C., when we attempt to seek to satisfy spiritual and emotional needs that only God can satisfy, such as significance, security, contentment, and a desire for peace. But you see, in the only place any of those kinds of qualities can occur in a lasting way is through an intimate, continual relationship with God in Jesus Christ. But if we take these, these uncomfortable feelings and we try to quiet them, satisfy them, seek contentment through physical means, we will short-circuit what God intended. Now, let me tell you this. The physical senses are potent. And you know what? If you pursue something through physical senses, and it can be an addictive thing, which, you know, it can be alcohol, drugs. I mean, promiscuous sex is addictive. Homosexual practice is an addiction. They're all an addictive behavior. They're trying to compensate for something that's missing. And so, but so is anger. And so is power. And you see what I'm saying? They're all the same. They're all the same. And you can, you can deflect thinking about it by pursuing some physical satisfaction that will work for a short time. Because that's the, that's the most powerful thing, our physical senses. But we have to avoid that and pursue God, which takes effort. Y'all have learned that. Our sin is always an attempted compensation for some wound or weakness or something that we lack or believe that we lack that should be found in God alone. So whatever whatever sin God identified, it fits this category. It's a compensation. Something you believe about yourself. Something you experience in yourself. You know, the reason we do transformation prayer is just because it's a way that we can help people hear from God. And they can hear who they really are and who he really is. And it's the way, the only way I know, although it can happen when you pray, but it doesn't happen predictably. But when you have someone helping you, it seems that God just shows up and replaces intellectual truth, which is lies, with spiritual truths, which is his truth. I mean, I speak from experience. And there are many others here that do. So give that a, give that a thought. Transformation prayer. You can call the, the um, go to the Care Connect room. You can talk to someone after the service. You can call the office on Monday. What wound, weakness, or lie about yourself are you attempting to compensate for through means that you know are wrong? 
Everybody got that right? The second step is deception. Verse 14, the second part, our desires is the word which entice us and drag us away. Now, the word entice is a Greek word, diliazo, and it was a fishing term. And it referred to bait which attracts the attention of prey while hiding the hook. Drag away is a hunting, hunting term, excelco. And it refers to a baited trap that's designed to appeal to, to an inner hunger in an animal and cause the animal to be compelled into the trap, ignoring, rejecting fear, ignoring caution. So the two are related, but they, they have a little different meaning. Sin looks attractive and pleasurable. It appeals to desires. It promises to satisfy hungers we possess while concealing dangers. We think sin will make us feel better about ourselves. You don't do it because you think it's going to be terrible for you. You think it's going to overcome insecurity, cause you to forget pain, escape disappointment in yourself or in others. That's enticement. But what we receive instead is shame, regret, sorrow, and pain. That's being dragged away. When we indulge thinking about a desired object, we are actually participating in our own deception that keeps us from seeing the hook, that causes us to overlook the trap. Our minds rationalize a justification that we know is wrong. This will make me happy. I deserve it. I'm not being treated the way I I should be treated. God, even this, God has given me this person and he hasn't taken away my affection for this person. Even though it's inappropriate. Our desire to have what we want is so strong that we discount possible dangers. We overlook harm to ourselves and the harm we'll do to others. As we plan to fulfill these desires selfishly. All of our sins is an expression of selfishness. So what wrong attitude or action are you rationalizing right now I mean some of you are engaging in a debate in your mind with me right now ask God to show you what that means the next step is disobedience verse 15 Before I read that, let me see. See, this process of temptation, 
It moves from our emotion. You know your emotion are the most your emotions are the most easy to fool. You know that, don't you? Desire, say we move from our emotions, which is our desire, to our intellect, which is our deception. Don't think that your reason is stronger than your desire. Not true at all. Your desire will be stronger than your reason unless you're submitted under God's will. So we move from emotion, which is desire, to intellect, which is deception. We think of a justification to the will. And in our will, we decide to disobey. James changed the picture from fishing and hunting to the birth of a baby here. And he says, these desires give birth to sinful actions. You know, when birth happens, there's no way to go the other direction. Do you know that? I know a woman, she says, you know, sometimes I just like to zip this child back up in me. But there's, there's no reversing the process. So this desire gives birth to sinful action. Only a Christian who is able to control his emotional or her emotional responses to temptation when they first appear will be able to effectively deal with sin in his or her life. The battle occurs in the mind. And sin is conceived in the mind. So we have to train our minds to watch over our emotional desires. Our feelings. I'm mad. I'm sad. I'm hurt. I want this. I need this. And learn to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sensitizes us to the presence of sin. You know what I'm talking about? He sounds an alarm. Now, after a while, that alarm, you can, you can turn the volume down on that alarm, can't you? That's called quenching the Spirit. If you have difficulty discerning the Spirit's leading... And, you know, if we've been engaging in something that we know is wrong, you will have a hard time hearing the Spirit's alarm. So when you can't discern what the Spirit is saying to you, then you turn to the Scripture and rely on what the Scripture says is right and wrong. Because the Spirit and the Scripture always agree. Did you hear me? How often do the Spirit and the Scripture agree? So if you're hearing something from the Spirit that violates what God says in His Word, which one's wrong? This, I confused y'all, didn't y'all? <laughs> you're not hearing the Spirit. You're hearing yourself. You're hearing your own desires speaking. So you, when you can't hear the Spirit, and even if you think you're hearing the Spirit, you check what the Spirit's saying by the revealed Word. Because the Spirit will not tell you something that violates what the Word says. The earlier in the process we determine to resist, the greater the likelihood we will avoid. Turn to 2 Timothy. I don't have a lot of cross-references. There are a lot on your, on your outline, but I'm not turning to many of them. 961.
2 Timothy 2.22. Okay, what's that first word say? No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? What does it say? No, that's not what it says. It says, run! In other words, be scared. Be very scared. You, well, I can withstand this. No, you cannot. Or you might be able today and you won't be able to tomorrow. When you get disappointed, suddenly you won't even want to run. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living. You see that? Faithfulness, love, and peace. Now, that's something you have to do, you see? Run away, run toward a righteous life, according to God's word. Faithfulness to Christ and the scriptures. Faithfulness to others. Love for God and people. And peace. Then enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Notice the qualifier. It doesn't say enjoy companionship with people you like. You may need to have less companionship with some of those people. Enjoy the companionship of people who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Do you have friends like that? If you don't, you're going to be susceptible to fall. We can avoid many temptations simply by running away, by avoiding situations where we know temptation is most likely to occur. So recognize what entices you to sin. We don't, we're not all enticed by the same things, but you've got to know what your triggers are. Magazines, books, movies, TV programs, internet sites, friends, places. And I'm not just talking about bars. It might be stores, car lots, perhaps neighborhoods. You see what I'm saying? If you need to get something, if you satisfy what you feel like is missing, if you're trying to compensate by purchasing, you need to be very sensitive to where you're going. You know what I'm saying? If you drive through a neighborhood and you feel sad afterward because they have what you don't, stay out of that neighborhood. You see my you see my point? Instead, we must be exposed to the presence of God through prayer and Bible reading and fasting and worship and participation with other believers in small groups and in service. These are the practices that provide joy, peace, and contentment. And you know what? Have you ever had a taste of joy? Have you ever inhaled peace? Have you ever experienced contentment? Have you? If you have, you will want no part of nasty sin. It'll be, it'll be distasteful suddenly, won't it? The final step is death. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. For unbelievers, which, which I'm talking about, not born again people, non-Christians, sin separates us from the experience of God in this life. 
And it separates us from the presence of God permanently in the next. Now, even if you are a born-again believer, you will suffer death if you indulge sin in your life. I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation, of course. But you will diminish your spiritual vitality and your ability to sense the Spirit's leading. To discern the voice of God. If you keep making these wrong decisions to do what's wrong. You'll lose that sensitivity. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Sin promises what it can't deliver. And it takes you to places you don't want to go. Do you recognize the process of sin in your life? Do you realize that it will result in death? And will you run from temptation? And then finally, we we resist temptation by remembering God's goodness. James 1.16 So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Now what he's saying about don't be misled harkens back to what he's just said. God's not responsible for temptations. His nature's incompatible with sin. He's holy and loving. He's a gracious giver of gifts. And verse 17, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. The lights are the sun, moon, and stars. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Now these celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars, they move, don't they? They rotate. They cast shadows on our landscape that that move and lengthen and they're shorter and then they're longer. They're always in motion. But God doesn't change in any way. He doesn't alter his attitudes. He's always the giver of good, perfect gifts. And then he names the best gift. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, become his prized possession. A more literal translation is the first fruit of his creatures. God gave you salvation. It's the greatest gift you can receive and the most undeserved one. Park yourself there a while. I've been given the greatest gift a person can receive and the one I deserve least. Why would he choose to damage us through enticement to sin? And if we know the gracious goodness of God, why would we rebel against him by submitting to temptation, by engaging in sin that separates us from the one who loves us most? Do you reflect on the goodness of God? If you do, it will protect you 
from temptation. It will prevent you from sin. So let me urge you. You know, I don't think at all that what I've said in the last 30 minutes, 35 minutes, will completely change your life. But let me urge you, take this, it opens up, this outline, and spend some time doing the work again. Do it by yourself, but better, do it with someone else. Join a group or collect a group. Start a group where you can dialogue with each other and you can gather with some people that love God and start loving you to help you run when it's time to run, when it's time to flee. Take a step. So do this, and then the soul training is to identify an inner desire that often leads to disobedience. Ask God to reveal a way to escape. 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that you'll never encounter temptation that's too strong to resist. And God will offer you a way of escape. He will show you a door to depart by. Start taking it. Father, we thank you for your word. Let this truth, Lord, bury in our hearts and minds that we would follow after it. Lord, help us to seek that which we need from you instead of from this world. Lord, help us to stop grasping short-lived sensation instead of permanent satisfaction through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. As I said, counselors will be here. They'll also be in the Care Connection room.